Got this one? Morning. It has been weeks. I am glad that we are back in church. Because, man, it has been like sickness. So Olivia had it. I had it. And then Balin was in quarantine because she was exposed to school. And so, yes. Hi. <laughs> it is good to see you guys, man. Um, so praise the Lord. Um, I haven't done missions in that, like X amount. Of, like it's been a month. It's been over a month that I haven't actually been here to do the missions prayer. So I'm excited that we can actually do it again. Um, how many of you guys still praying for Jeff? Jeff Woodkey. Uh, no new information, but please keep praying for him. You know, the, the holidays are tough, you know, for, for any, anything like that. If somebody lost a loved one or, or whatever the situation is. And for Jeff, it's, it's kind of extra tough because we know he's still kicking. He's still around and he's in prison. So just be praying for Jeff, be praying for his family. Um, you know, he is in chains. So let's stand with our brother in chains and then support his family in whatever way that we can. Um, Colorado is kind of a mess. So I think we should probably pray for Colorado this morning. Um, just a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I, I, it's incredible how quick the, the devastation was, I think. That, that, to me, is what got it. Because the wildfires out in California and the West Coast, it's, it, it happens. But, um, yeah, Colorado was fast. It hit hard, and it went through it quick. Um, so let's pray for that this morning. Excuse me. And then another one, uh, I, I just got an update um, from Pastor Scott's that there's a, a local family um, who had a daughter uh, and a husband who lived out on the West Coast, uh, and she was killed in a car accident. Um, and she was doing missions work uh, in Thailand. Um, so let's just pray for, what's their last name? Larson. Larson's. The Larson, yes, that's right. Uh, the Larson family. Let's just pray for the Larson's too. Um, so Colorado and the Larson's, and I'll say a quick, a quick prayer for Jeff as well. Uh, but let's pray. Lord, thank you so much, Father, for, for who you are. God, thank you that you hear our prayers and respond. So, Lord, we just continue to press in for our brother Jeff. Bless him, Father. Stand with him. May your Holy Spirit encourage him and give him words to speak in the perfect time. And, Lord, as we know that uh, there's, there's devastation in Colorado now, God, I pray that you would fill that state. God, I pray that, that workers would be um, raised up, God, that the church would get on the horse and ride and just go to that area that they would really impact that community, that they would preach the gospel clearly with words, Father. I pray that there would be amazing things that would happen, that new churches would be established through the devastation, that you would raise up more pastors to pastor churches. Father, I pray that you would be glorified through the devastation. And Father, we pray for the Larsons, God. Loss is just really hard. It's such an unnatural part of who we are. So God, I pray that you would encourage that family I pray that you would lift them up in this season. I pray that you would provide and meet their every need. God, I pray that you would be glorified, God, as, as the, the passing of their daughter has happened, that more would hear about the gospel and respond to your kingdom. I know that that is how she lived her life. That is how she served. And so, God, I pray that you would be glorified in her death as well, that you, Lord, would bring redemption to communities, to families, to individuals, through this lady's life. So God, be glorified. We thank you for this time that we can partner with these different brothers and sisters. And we thank you, Lord, that we can lift up prayers that can have an impact on these areas. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning for our Bible study. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to, I'll read uh, verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 18, actually verse 1 of chapter 3 uh, also. So let's do that. Uh, for it was fitting for him, God, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers and sisters, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, 
Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. And I'll put a period there instead of a comma. So, yeah, thank you, Lord, um, for your word, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, for the ability to understand. God bless you, Radio and Mumi, for being here this morning. Uh, the title of today's message is uh, The Purity, Power, and Passion of Our Brother, Shepherd, and Mediator, Jesus Christ. The purity, the power, and the passion of our brother, our shepherd, and our mediator, Jesus Christ. And I believe... Those three things, his role as our fellow man, our brother, are clearly talked about here by the author. And then in verses 14 and 15, he talks about destroying the power of the devil. And I'm going to spin that in the aspect of Jesus being our good shepherd. And then finally, verses 16 through 18 especially 17 through 18, uh, he clearly is our mediator. And that's what he discusses there. Um, so with all that, let me just open by saying Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Uh, and that, actually, I'm saying that intentionally because we are post-Christmas, <laughs> all right? We've rejoiced in the fact that Jesus came down and was born of a virgin, in a stable in Bethlehem. But now let's think about why did he come and the result of why he came. We know why he came. Jesus said it. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Hebrews 2 connects us to this very season in that um, he talks about in verse 14, for example, he himself likewise shared in human flesh, which also indicates the experience of living, being tempted from the outside and from the inside, tempted to do things wrong. Uh, so that would be talking about understanding that he has been born, so we're post-Christmas, but then he also talks in the verse 18 about Jesus being our propitiation. We'll talk about that. It's a big word. We're not familiar with it always. But we'll get there and we'll go through that. Uh, that is his mediator. He was there. There's one mediator between God and men. And it's the man Christ Jesus. Um, and the reason I say Happy New Year is because what the author is alluding to is the Day of Atonement. He, for the first time in this letter, he refers to Jesus as a merciful and faithful high priest. His, the Lord's priestly role was his most important role. It was him giving himself as a ransom for many. Not to um, say that his life of being a prophet and revealing God's nature was insignificant. It actually was very significant, and it led up to understanding what he accomplished as our priest. So it's that day of atonement. Um, and for Jewish people, Yom Kippur, it's called Yom Kippur. For them, it was a new beginning, 
Okay, it was the one day of the year where the high priest and the high priest alone would go into the presence of God and make an offering for the sin of all the people. And once his offering was accepted, he would come back out and everybody got a new beginning. It's like all your sin would be uh, representative by their representative man, their high priest for these Jewish people. And this is what happened for thousands of years, a couple of millennium, where that high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, one day, one man, one offering for all the people. Pretty simple. And once it was accomplished, if he did his job right, then everybody got a new beginning. It was a new year. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We all are at this point in time, it's, what is it, January 2nd, right? So we're all looking forward to a new year and With that comes from fresh resolve to deal with some things in our lives, maybe stop some things that we're doing or start to do some things that we wish we had been doing. And it's very natural and it's normal and it's good to take an evaluation of your life and and to move forward into the new year with that going on. So let me just remind you as we get started the reason for this letter. The reason the author is writing is that Christians who were, had a Jewish background were suffering persecution. Christians who had a Jewish background were being persecuted for their faith. In other words, it was becoming difficult to profess their Christian faith without suffering for it. And so to alleviate the stress, they were drifting That's our word that we've learned. They were drifting away from Jesus and reverting back to the old covenant. See, that was not as offensive as it is to stand up and say, Hi, I'm a born-again Christian. Jesus has cleansed my sin, and he wants to cleanse your sin. And he's the only way to heaven. There's exclusivity here. And it gets into a lot of things that offends people. The gospel has an offensive nature to it. And so these people were boldly professing that. They were suffering for it. And so over the course of time, they, to alleviate the stress, uh, they were started to drift away from Jesus and were reverting back to the old covenant. This made allowance, by the way, for deception in sin. This started to allow deception in sin back into the lives. So the author writes to anchor their soul in the truth of the gospel. He encourages them to abide in the vine. He's encouraging them and us to abide in the vine because um, just a casual observation of the scriptures and the times in which we live, I think there is a real, I'm not a prophet, but it doesn't take much to figure out that we might personally experience similar situation that they are were experiencing where it would become increasingly difficult to express your faith with words like Andrew reminded us without getting some repercussion from that and in fact that's already going on and so it's important for us to take heed to what the author is writing here and let me just say this before we get started the author is not telling them anything they don't already know He's really just reminding them to remember (laughs) the truth of that beautiful moment of transformation inside of their hearts uh, and how they became instantly attached and fell in love with Jesus when they realized by the grace of God and the illumination of the Holy Spirit upon their lives, they came into a personal relationship. They were born again. They were saved. He's just reminding them of what they already know but he's speaking to them from the context of their background, their Jewish background, because they were reverting back to the Old Covenant and the way that they, for generations and generations and generations, had worshipped through animal sacrifices and and all that took place in the temple, then he's correcting them on those issues. So let me begin by just saying that... um, If we pick it up at verse 10, the author is making the point of the majesty of Jesus' humanity. 
And he's made the point very strongly from Psalm chapter 8, which he quotes here in verses 5, 6, and 7. He refers to that in verses 6 and 7, that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. Okay? He's referring to the fact that he stepped down into our world. He came lower than the spirit beings and actually took upon himself a full experience as a human. He is the representative man. Okay? And so what I want to try to do is just talk about is Jesus our brother. So it's the purity, the power, and the passion. The purity of Jesus our brother, which was preparing him for his priestly work, his primary work. I'm saying a lot of words here, and I'm hopefully it's just because it's been a couple of weeks. Last week's sermon was a little bit more seasonal from Matthew, the wise man coming to worship Jesus. But uh, because of that, I'll just remind you that what we've said is that the, uh, the overall theme of this book is the majesty and ministry of Jesus. The majesty and ministry of Jesus. The author can't help himself. He's talking about both as he closes out this chapter. He's talking about the majesty that divinity took on humanity. And it was a very real thing, his human life. He experienced all the struggles and temptations that we have, yet without sin. So that's where we're at in verse 10. Let's pick it up there. For it was suitable for God, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. God is our creator in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He was perfect through suffering. So just to reiterate what we mentioned the last time we touched on this, the easiest way for me, simple-minded Pastor Scott, is to understand what's it mean to be made perfect through suffering it's easier for me to say what it doesn't mean because I know Jesus and I know how he's revealed from the Gospels that it doesn't mean that he, it was a refining process, that it, the perfecting through suffering doesn't mean that he was bad and became good, that he was immoral and became perfect. It's not what it means. His suffering in life was preparing him to be our sin offering. So please hear me. Perfect through suffering was not for refining, it was for relating. You hearing me? It's so that we can relate to him and he fully relates to us. This was a requirement of a high priest that he needed to be sympathetic and obedient. These are really the two requirements of, of being a high priest. You had to be sympathetic. And sympathetic means, as the word implies, simp or sum, right? You share pathos, pathetic, right? In other words, I can feel what you're feeling because I've been there, done that. It's different from empathetic. Empathetic means I understand your difficulty, but I haven't really experienced it. Like I get this text or email from Chuck Tompkins, I think Thursday, a local pastor who uh, let our, our pastor's group know that uh, Dave and Beth Larson's daughter was killed. And the moment I read it, it was just tears, grief. For the family, beautiful family. Dave has spoken here at our church a few different times. Empathy. I can't relate. I've never lost a son or a daughter. So there's empathy. Now, if I had, thankfully I haven't, then there would be sympathy. I can actually feel what you're feeling. Or as Tozer would say, it's like a tuning fork. You hit that thing, and there's a sympathetic resonance with the piano in the room. 
will actually start buzzing with the sound of the, of the fork. And radio, you could speak to this, but right? Because there's a, a sympathy. There's a sympathetic feeling between the, the, the note that's played in the fork to the piano. It's what's required. And that's what the author is communicating to us here. The captain of our salvation became qualified to be sympathetic through the sufferings. Brothers and sisters, it's hard for us to understand or relate to how grievous it was for Jesus just to simply experience temptation. The proposal to do bad was in and of itself a horrific experience for his pure, holy heart and soul and nature. That in and of itself, to enter into our brokenness and to see and to have a devil come at him and to actually experience temptation itself was just a shocking, it must have been a shocking experience for one who's the creator of all things to come out of pure, holy, majestic light and step down into darkness and then to, you know, grow and mature. He's been through it all, right, from birth, went through the toddler stage, went through the preteen, the teen, the whole thing, right? And the, and the older he got, the more responsible he was for his own decisions, his willful decisions. But as, as he starts to grow and he experiences temptation to lie or to steal, how repulsive that must have been him. There's a suffering going on there that was real and dynamic in his life. So that's what I believe he's saying here in verse 10 knowing that he's going to refer to Jesus as our merciful and faithful high priest, he's, he's looking ahead to that and he's, and he's saying the perfecting wasn't for refining, it was for relating. Now, why is this cool? <laughs> That's what I wrote down. Why is that cool? Because these Christians who had a Jewish background were thinking of going back to the old system of sacrificing an animal. So the reason that Jesus is relatable is because he's not an animal. So in the old system, an animal was suitable because it didn't sin, but it wasn't sufficient because it didn't sin. It didn't have a will. It didn't willfully disobey. And therefore, it was a suitable offering. And the, and the sinner would put his hands on the head of the animal and there'd be a confession that was made. And it was indicating a transference out of my soul into your innocent soul. And then it would be offered in substitutionarily in the place of the sinner. So it was a suitable, but it wasn't sufficient. The only sufficient and suitable is a human without sin. That's what the author will actually say later on in Hebrews chapter 10. And that's what he means when he said it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So let me just do a little sci-fi illustration, imagination with you. If animals could talk, <laughs> okay, so you're at the temple and here comes the ox or pick your animal, right? You can use an ox, a goat, a lamb, or a pigeon. These are basically the offerings that would, be, that would be made. So let's just imagine that the ox can talk. And the ox looks at you as you're about ready to put your filthy little hands on it. And, he sa and, and the ox says, well, here you go. Here you go, right? And you put your filthy little sinful life on the hands of that ox and you go, thank you. But you have no idea what I go through, Mr. Ox. You don't understand temptation. It doesn't make any sense to you whatsoever. 
You can't relate to me in any possible way. You, Mr. Ox, have no idea what it's like to struggle with covetous hatred, lust, and every other sort of evil desire, let alone spiritual warfare. But thank you very much. You see the point? That's why a blood and a goat can't take away sin. It needs to be an innocent man. Jesus was perfected through salvation, qualified sympathetically with us because he, was, he experienced evil without sin. But that qualifies him to be our high priest, your high priest, your high priest. His work of... And nobody got this. Nobody got this. That's why, that's why Hebrews is such a precious letter to teach the church. Because when you read the Gospels and you, you read about his betrayal and arrest and his trial and his crucifixion, you go, oh, that's a horrible thing. But then you read Hebrews and you realize what's going on in his heart. It's one man going in on one day, making one offering for the sin of all the people. And through confession, I can relate to you because you have lived this life and you've offered yourself. He does speak and he does interact with us. And he's like, here you go. Here is life. If you will repent and confess me as your Lord and Savior, I'll give you life and I will purge sins, pleasure, and power and away from you and its penalty of death. So the author goes on, he says in verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers and sisters. And so we see in verse 11 the result of our brother Jesus. And it's okay to call him that. That's exactly what the author is referring to here. He's, he's our brother in the truest sense of the word in that he's experienced the difficulties of human life in a very real way. We've been going uh, out at the Suey's Bible study on Thursday night. We're going through John. We got to chapter 4 and the famous verse 6 where it says, Jesus was weary with his journey. He sat down next to the well. He was just flat out exhausted is what that word means. And it could be physical exhaustion. I think it was emotional and spiritual exhaustion. He'd just come out of Jerusalem where he had faced confrontation and hatred by men who will later express their hatred by spitting in his face, grabbing his beard and pulling it out of his head. And they start conspiring to kill him right away. Who do you think you are? cleansing our temple. He went right at their wallet, roused their anger because he cleansed. They had a big thriving business going on during the Passover. He was weary. He experienced exhaustion spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. Our brother. The result of his faithfulness, of his obedience of his faithfulness and obedience was that he makes holy. That's what sanctifies means. He makes holy. Hagiadzo. It means to make holy, to have set apart. You're now called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are of one. It seems to mean he's, he's saying you're of one. The source and the resource of our being made holy is God through Christ. But it seems to also indicate that he's made us one. We're now the church. We're the body of Christ. For both he who sanctifies those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which, which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. We now share a definite likeness. I'm holy. I came from holy. Now I've given you holy. We can hang out. That is so awesome. And therefore I can call you brother and sister. And then the author quoting 
here in verse 12 from Psalm 22, verse 22, right? Uh, where he says, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Now, just let me just quickly remind you, Psalm 22, first verse, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I ring a bell to anybody? Yeah, it's what Jesus said on the cross. And when you go through that psalm, verse 1 through 21, everything, actually the gospel writers refer to that psalm numerous times as being fulfilled while Jesus was being crucified. Everything changes at verse 22, indicating that there's been a death, there's been a burial, now there's a resurrection. And now that one who cried out, my God, and who had his hands pierced, and whom the soldiers gambled for his clothing, and who the religious hypocrites walked by and wagged their heads in disgust, now he's alive again. And he says... I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. That is beautiful, my brothers and sisters. Do you know what he's saying there? The name of God is his character. He's gracious and merciful and long-suffering. Right? These are just some of the attributes that come out quickly in my mind. And it's how he revealed himself to Moses. I will pass by and I will declare the name of the Lord. And so now that we have been saved, he's like, I'm going to tell you about this wonderful father that we have. My brethren, he declares your name to my brethren, not to the world, but to those who have believed. And in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. God bless you, Andrew and Olivia, for leading worship this morning. What this tells me is that Jesus is right here singing with us. He is absolutely thrilled and and rejoices in those who believe. Those who respond to his work of saving, making uh, mediatorial work, that it just blesses his heart. And God gets all the glory. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I in the children of uh, whom God has given me. Uh, the author here in uh, verse 13 is quoting twice from Isaiah chapter 8. All right? And for the sake of brevity, I will not read all that to you. Uh, I'll just give you an overview of what's happening. But let me ask you this. Isaiah chapter 8 comes after what chapter? Chapter 7. Isaiah seven fourteen. ring a bell? just came out of Christmas. It's the prophecy of a virgin that will give birth. How about Isaiah chapter 9? That ring a bell? It's a prophecy of Jesus. Unto you a child is born, unto you a son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And right in the middle of these two prophetic passages about Jesus is chapter 8, which just really smells to me like a lot of words that relate to Jesus. In a nutshell, here's what happens. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah and says that you're being a faithful bro. You're declaring my truth to the people. They don't want to hear it. They're rejecting you. They're rejecting not you, but the truth. They're rejecting me. He gave Isaiah those words. And then after giving those words to Isaiah, Isaiah responds. And he says this, Tie up the scroll as legal evidence Seal the official record of God's instructions and give it to my followers. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And here's the quote, and I will hope in him. In other words, Isaiah stands among his followers and says, 
I will hope and trust in God and His Word in the face of rejection of the truth that I have proclaimed. I will be faithful and courageous knowing that God will settle the score someday. It therefore removes me from the desire for justice. That's what he's saying here in brief in this first quote in 13. I will put my trust or hope in him. Isaiah is standing up among his fellows who are being rejected also because they're just simply declaring the truth. And he says, I'll put my trust in him. And then in the next verse, he says, um, actually, I didn't write it down here. Well, he says this, here am I and the children whom God has given me. And so he takes his brothers, literally his two sons, who got really long, interesting names. But Isaiah is standing there with his two sons, and he goes, here we are, my brethren. So I'm standing, and they're standing with me. All that to say, until Jesus comes again and settles the score, the children of God has given me will be witness to the unbelieving world. <laughs> That's essentially what the author is referring to here. Which, by the way, evidently they knew their Old Testament well enough to connect to the message that Isaiah had written. Total ingenious way of encouraging his brothers and sisters who were going through similar experience with that Isaiah was experiencing. But he sees in Isaiah a type of Christ, one who stood up and said, I'm going to hope in God. And I'm going to hope in what God had said. There is joy in the presence of the Lord. That was the one thing that he looked forward to beyond the cross. And then he stands afterwards and he connects us back to Psalm 22 and he goes, here's the children God has given me. We will be a witness and signs and wonders will follow is actually what Isaiah said until the Lord comes again. So that takes us to verse 14 and I'll just change tack here just a little bit. We've seen the purity of our brother Jesus. Now I want to talk about the power of Jesus our shepherd. Uh, where the writer says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. By the way, the word fear there in the Greek is phobos. Phobos. So what word do you think we get in English as we translate phobos or phobos? Phobia. Phobia. I looked it up. Phobia is a type of anxiety disorder defined by a persistent and excessive fear of an object or situation. A phobia is a type of anxiety disorder defined by a persistent and excessive fear of an object or a situation. A phobia is an anxiety disorder. For example, Fear of flying, fear of being underwater, fear of public speaking. <laughs> Been there, right? You go, it's amazing what you can experience physically. And it seems like you have no control over it. Fear of spiders, fear of missing out, FOMO. <laughs> it's a very big deal these days. Social media does not help that. I need to connect. I'm missing out on the conversation. There's a fear of that. It becomes a phobia. We actually start to have a physical reaction. And it becomes irrational. You might need to have some counseling. Phobia results in irrational behavior. It might require counseling or medication. You know what came to my mind this morning as I'm thinking of Phobia. You ever seen that Bob Newhart sketch? Uh, he was a comedian, right? Woman comes in. He's a counselor in this little sketch. She comes in. She has a fear of being buried alive in a box. You ever seen that? <laughs> it's classic. It's very clean. His counsel is amazing. <laughs> I won't give it away. If you haven't seen it, you can check it out. Bob Newhart, fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> His response, his counsel is beautiful. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't want to make light of this. 
I don't want to make light of this because I have a friend who I've come to know who told me that as a very young person, he was phobic about dying. He, there was, and he had no solution until, by God's grace, he became a Christian. And it went away, right away. Because he saw Jesus and his high priestly accomplishment on his behalf and the victory over death that he gave him. So I don't want to make light of it because some deal with this. I will say this, though, that maybe some of us need to be a little bit more fearful of death. That the wages of sin is death. If you're spiritually dead and you die in your spiritual deadness, there is an eternal separation from God. So there might be a need for a little more healthier fear of this. One of the beauties and the advantages of being near people near their deathbed. And I just had my dad in mind, truthfully. I wasn't there. My sister was there. My dad, pretty soft-spoken guy, kind of shy by nature. Um, outspoken in his faith and his way. You wouldn't know it out so much. He very effective in the community which, you know, farming community he lived. But I think the most powerful and the greatest example of his faith, bar none, was when he took his glasses off as he's been transferred out of ICU into the room where he knows he's going to die. And once he finally got from all disconnected from the life support, took his glasses off, set them on the bedside, and said, here I come, Jesus. No fear in death. Zero. In fact, welcoming it. Anticipating. Excited about it. That's phenomenal. You only get one shot at it. <laughs> and it is a, a literal unknown to us. What really happens when I cross that threshold, when I kiss this world goodbye? My dad's telling me. And he's telling you and I this morning, no fear in death because he, he loved Jesus because Jesus loved him and saved him as a sinner when he was 57 years old, later in his life. Jesus is our shepherd, our powerful shepherd. And the reason I'm saying that is because Jesus referred to him as himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Contrasted with the religious hypocrites, the hired hand, who is not a shepherd. Now listen to what Jesus said, John chapter 10. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. Our Jesus saw the wolf coming. So do a little imaginative illustration with me again. A little bit different from the other one, but just imagine that there's a wolf with no teeth or no claws. <laughs> Now, it's still a wolf. It still has quite a bit more strength and speed than a lamb. But what harm can it do? I guess the most it could do was maybe get the little critter in its mouth and shake it up a little bit. Hopefully snap its neck. I don't know. But it can't actually penetrate and kill and destroy and bleed the thing out and eat it. He can't do that anymore. <laughs> so I'm just saying that's kind of what I'm seeing here Jesus took the power of death away from the devil. He took his teeth out, declawed him. He's still there. I recognize his threatenings, but he can't inflict death on me any longer. And that is only true for those who are a sheep. That's only true for the sheep, for those who have been born of the Spirit. And by the way, this morning I was thinking about this. And I was just rejoicing again in the fact that the Holy Spirit 
not only wrote the Bible, but organized the way it was laid out. So when you hear the cry of the shepherd in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken us? The Holy Spirit then put the response of the sheep, Psalm 23. And David could then say in Psalm 23, As one who had faith in the shepherd, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. I see him. Doesn't have power anymore because he rose from the dead. He killed death. And in the process, defanged, if you will, the devil. Removed his power to kill us. And then finally, verse 16 through 18, the passion of Jesus, our meteor. We've seen the purity of our brother, the power of our shepherd, and now the passion of our mediator. And he says in verse 16, for indeed who does not give aid to angels. By the way, it's the last time he mentions angels. He's, he's sort of concluding because he'd gotten involved in angel worship. This is the last time. He doesn't give aid to angels, which seems to indicate that angels don't die, in case you didn't know that. Think about it. Every time Jesus did an exorcism, he would banish them. He wouldn't kill them. Angels don't die. They're spiritual beings. Okay? They will, in fact, experience torment and judgment, but they don't die. Somebody once said years ago, the demon that was in Hitler is roaming around today. Hitler took his own life. Demon didn't die with him. And so that spirit of murder and Holocaust spirit is out there. And they're all out there. Good and bad angels. They don't die. He doesn't come to the aid of angels, but he comes to us because we are experiencing this slavery, this bondage, to death, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, referring to these people who came from Abraham's line. Very, very particularly, he says that. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the world. All right? Or for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. So I'm going to just stop for a moment. Verse 18, probably our application verse. So let me just work with you for a moment on this word propitiation. That's how my New King James reads. By the way, I think it's the best. I don't stand alone on that. Your translation might say reconciliation. All right. Uh, maybe it says expiation or atonement. He made an atonement. But I want us to remember propitiation. Here's how I want us to remember that, okay? Uh, I'm so appreciative of the worship music that uh, God laid on Andrew and Olivia's heart. Because in one of the songs, I don't remember which one, there was a lyric that talked about a great chasm. There was this massive gulf, this huge divide between God and men. And that gulf is you can't cross it. You can attempt to cross it with your religion and good works and charitable giving and such, but you'll, you'll never, you can't even, you, you can't. It's too wide and it's incrossable. So we have on one side, we have holy God separated from sinful man, separated by this massive chasm. So propitiation, I'm saying all that, is, uh, as I see it, it's, it's this issue of sin that has separated man from God. Propitiation is what concerns God's side of, on his side of the hill. Expiation concerns us, which is the guilt and, and, and condemnation that is deservedly ours. And the result, when a mediator has done his work, is reconciliation. Okay. We're getting into it here a little bit. These are great theological concepts. Propitiation means to appease somebody's wrath. You've offended him. I've offended God. He is justifiably, because we broke his law, don't lie. We're all liars. Don't steal. We've all stolen. 
We broke his law. Don't lust. Commit adultery. Don't have greed. We've all done it. We do it all the time. Honor your mom and dad. We don't. Love God with all your heart. We don't. There's a huge, massive separation because of this condition of us. It offends God, and He is justified, therefore, in bringing the sentence upon the guilty. Propitiation means I satisfy His requirement. I appease His wrath. Expiation is our side of the deal where it says, I'll remove your guilt. And the result is reconciliation. That's the work of a mediator. That's what Jesus did when He hung on the cross. There's one mediator between God and man. And it's the man, our brother, Christ Jesus, who's sympathetic with our situation, having been tested but never failed the test. And therefore, he can speak to us and say, here I go on your behalf. Nobody's taking my life from me. I'm laying it down willingly, lovingly, so that you on the other side of this vast gulf will look at the cross that stands in the middle and say, here's my way across. He will satisfy God's wrath. Jesus got judged for what we deserved. He got what we deserved. Simple as that. I preach this all the time at the renovation house. And believe me, for men and women who are there on probation and have been in prison and have a record, and once they get out, they're going back. They've got to figure out what's going to happen to them. Will they go back to prison? They love that. They love to hear this. It makes a very strong connection. I'll go through the whole scene with them. Imagine you're standing in the courtroom, and the judge is about to bring down the gavel to bring the sentence that you deserve. And just before that happens, some innocent person steps between you and the judge and says, give it to me. Let him go free. They're like, that would be awesome. Jesus Christ. That's what's happened. And you know what? It satisfies the law. The law is doing what it's designed to do. It's bringing the justice that is deserved of the sinner. And it's taking care of... Now, the great thing of Jesus is that he died, rose again, proving that he was innocent. If he had never risen, he would have stayed dead. It proved that he was our sympathetic, justifiable high priest to represent all of men on that day of atonement. He satisfied God's wrath. And in the process, when we believe, he, take, he extinguishes our guilt and condemnation. We get life eternal life. That's the passion of our mediator. The purity of our brother, the power of our shepherd, and the passion of our mediator. What's that mean for us? How do I apply it? Very simply, he's present. He is present with you and I now by the work and the power of his Holy Spirit, Jesus. And I'm just going to Briefly say that. Jesus said before he left, I will give you another helper. I've been with you. I'm leaving. Bye-bye. But I will give you another one like me, God the Spirit, and he will help you. That's what, how the author closes verse 18. In that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted meaning He's with you and me in every situation we find ourselves in. He is with you in every situation you find yourself in. Everyone. And His powerful, pure, and passionate character is here in us to help us through the mountains that are blocking our way from advancing in the kingdom of God. And I'm talking about simple stuff like, can I really be gracious to somebody who's unkind to me? That's hard to do. It's what these people were facing. And the author's saying, he's been there, done that. And now 
you can actually experience his literal power in you by the Holy Spirit. He's taken up residence in your life. The disgust and the hatred that you're feeling so strong about towards someone. I have a, I, the Lord's like, I can change that in you. I can change it. I can transform you. One step at a time, you're being sanctified. He's able to aid those who are tempted. (laughs) Praise the Lord. And I hope, and I know, actually I know, I know you guys well enough to know that uh, you're experiencing His victory all the time. You are. Comes through prayer, comes through confession, Sometimes there's a struggle, there's a great working out. And I hope you're, you, you just take hope, right? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. The Lord is with you. He's present. And He's powerful. And I hope we'll actually learn to embrace the situations that seem impossible. And we'll go, okay... There was nothing impossible for you. Help me, Lord, to see possible where it doesn't seem possible. But always remember, He's a good shepherd. And though there may be delay in your request, and though you may continue to struggle, He's a good shepherd. And if you're His sheep, through faith, repentance and faith, then He's going to lead you all the way to the end. So we'll take communion this morning. Andrew and Olivia, if you would, or come back up. And um, So what we'll do is what we've done in the past uh, is they lead in some, maybe just some instrumental, just while the church gets your own uh, portion, <laughs> I will say, as you come forward and get your own portion. And here you go, Olivia, for your husband. Um, yeah, remember how these things work? <laughs> Push down, pull up. <laughs> okay? That's how you break the seal on the juice and the clear plastic pulls, pulls off pretty easily. But, uh, Andrew, just give us some beautiful music. Uh, while he's doing that, just walk forward. Get your portion of uh, the token of God's love for you. And then let me just say this. As you get back to your chair, confess your sin. You need to confess it. To admit it, that's okay. That's good. To be aware of it, you need to actually confess it. And sometimes we, we think that we're okay because I've acknowledged, yeah, I spoke disrespectfully to my dad. No, you need to confess, Lord, forgive me for being disobedient and name it. If you've looked at pornography, name it. Lord, forgive me for having a a lustful heart that, that seeks illicit sexual pleasure, that desires material wealth more than being satisfied with you. Experiencing true joy. So come on up, church. I encourage you to come forward and get your token of juice and wafer.
This is good. Just take a few moments with the Lord. The beauty of His being present with you privately is that you can be honest and uh, you can fully expose your your feelings and your heart to Him. Make a confession. Ask the Lord to forgive. And be confident that you have the forgiveness that you need. It's already yours. Just claim it for yourself. Don't look necessarily for a feeling to follow. Praise the Lord if there is. But just believe by faith. One offering one day, one man for all the people, for all our sin, all of it. So if you've got anything unconfessed, bring it to the Lord now. Maybe there's just been irritation, impatience with others because (laughs) often happens this time of year, we get into consume mode Lots of great food and family and, you know, self-fleshly pleasures that we are enjoying. Sometimes we can get caught and hard to come out of that. It creates a little irritation with others because you want your way. Maybe some unkind things have been said. Just confess those to the Lord. Then I'll leave it to you and to all of us to partake of the wafer and the juice at your own time. Wash all my sins away. 
God bless you, church. <laughs> Let's hang out and fellowship some, shall we, before the roads get <laughs> covered here. God bless you.